You're very special, kid. We're gonna find that place you belong, and they're gonna take real good care of you. This is Tython. That's where we're gonna try and find you a Jedi. But you have to agree to go with them if they want you to. Understand? Plus, I can't train you. You're too powerful. Don't you want to learn more of that Jedi stuff? I agreed to take you back to your own kind, so that's what I need to do. You understand, right? Oh, hello, everybody. Welcome to a special episode of the Wampus Lair podcast. I am your host tonight, Carl LeClaire, and I am joined by a faithful friend, a forever Fennec Shand. We've got the one and only Jim Urso. Hey, man. Thanks for having me back on the show. Very, very excited for this discussion tonight. I think <laughs> we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> I know. So Jason and I have been doing the the Mando watch at the start of every episode lately, but we actually decided not to do one next week because uh, we're finally hitting the the A New Hope radio drama, which is a lot to cover in an episode. And I was like, you know what? Let's just not do a Mando watch to like just devote to that. And I didn't expect much from this episode in all honesty. And then, you know, every Friday morning, you and I text after we watch the episodes and um. I mean, this just floored the both of us. And I was like, you know what? Screw it. We got to, I got to talk about this. And I was like, Jim, are you free? And luckily you were. So (laughs) we are going to be talking about chapter 14, the tragedy of season two of the Mandalorian. So if you have not watched and you don't want to be spoiled, turn off now because we are going to talk about everything that went on in this episode. And there is so much character building so many beautiful moments in my opinion in this episode this is jim like it's you and i have talked about it this episode and chapter oh my gosh bo katan is in chapter four, 13 12 13 12 12 yeah, yeah. i make i've been mixing up the numbers a lot me now. too <laughs> but the, this episode and the bo katan episode are by far to me the strongest um so i just was like yeah if we're not going to do a mando watch on the main show next week i'm i'm going to be very sad not getting to talk about this so i'm i'm really oh, glad absolutely you, of all the episodes to talk about this is definitely one of the top tier ones like we said <laughs> oh no question um so like like i just said you know we are we are going to dive right into this there's there's nothing else for us to cover except for this episode so this is your last chance if you've not watched Please turn off now because we are we are not going to hold back. Um, so there you go. You've got your you, that was your opportunity, Jim. Let's just start talking about this. This episode opens um, finally opens with the Mandalorian. Uh, last week's opened with Ahsoka, which was cool, but it's like not her story. I want Mandalorian. Um, so <laughs> it was really cool, and and it reminded me a lot of uh, the opening of. Um, I believe it's chapter 14, which is when they're going back to uh, meet up with Kara and grief and Mando and the child. It's, it's just another beautiful glimpse into the relationship that these two are building. And you've got Din essentially saying to the child to Grogu, which by the way, I love when he's like Grogu <laughs> and he like chuckles. Yeah, I think we all do. <laughs> he chuckles when Grogu like immediately responds, which I think is just so adorable. Um, I think he really gets a kick out of it too. But, oh yeah, yeah, it's excellent. And what I love about this opening little segment though between the two of them is I really feel that for the Mandalorian, there's a sadness he's carrying right now, knowing that it might be time for him to finally let the child go, you know, and he kind of confesses like, I'm not strong enough to train you. Like I'm not powerful. Like you are You're special kid. I can't do this. And there's like, to me, there's like a dejection there. Like he's really, he's really sad (laughs) that for in his, in his mind that this relationship he has been building is kind of reaching its end. And I think that really bums him out that he, he almost sees himself as beneath the child and he's not good enough to take care of him. What'd you think of this yeah. opening? I, well, I, I would totally agree with that. I mean, there, there, you sense like a, 
a strong feeling of like a lack of confidence in, in himself, like almost like self degradation, like the way that he has that very prominent, like emotional outburst where he's like, Oh, I just can't do this. I mean, he just immediately is defeated and, and doesn't have the confidence within himself that he of all people could help train this child. Um, but it, that also plays into what you're saying about, him having this attachment to Grogu now. I mean, in the previous episodes, I think based on like the different emotions that the Mandalorian was expressing, it was obvious that he wanted what he believed what was going to be best for Grogu, which is getting him to the Jedi. And I think this is really one of the first instances where he's like, it's really bothering him, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, you know, when he kind of exclaims like, uh, what, what's the like curse word that they're using now in Mandalorian? Uh, dink, uh, dink, I think it's Dank Varric. Yeah, Dank Varric. And the child immediately is, like drops the ball and thinks he's in trouble. And he's like, no, no, I'm not mad at you. He's mad at himself, right? Like he's mm-hmm. he's so upset that this child truly is as is as powerful as he's always thought and is as powerful as Ahsoka kind of confirmed. And like you were just saying, Jim, like he just he feels like he is not adequate to train the child to be there for the child and um man that just like like that immediately drew me right into this episode because um what i've loved about the show is that it's about these two characters um that was like why the last week's episode just still is not my favorite is it was a great episode it was really cool but it didn't feel like a mandalorian episode in a lot of ways to me and i don't mean to like denigrate it because it was obviously a great episode but this show was supposed to be about Din and the child and last week's didn't feel like that at all. So it was just really good to start this episode with the two of them. And you really feel that connection too. like the child also, cause he's like, you know, if we find the Jedi, you have to agree to go with them. And it's almost like the child is like, I don't think I'm going to want to, <laughs> you know, um, right. Grogu like wants to be with Din, I think as much as Din really does want to be with Grogu. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing too is like this, this scene is very critical for making the end of this episode very impactful, mm-hmm. um, which I'm, I'm sure we'll discuss a little bit later. Um, but yeah, establishing that there's that emotional connection to them. Like it's very established. It, it's very intimate at this point. It, it, it's very, integral i mean not just to this episode to the show and i think it's one of the best you know instances we've seen of like this relationship between the two of them and how it's grown yeah absolutely um and like i love the the humanness of this moment specifically you know coming from mandalorian just and obviously we're hitting this over the head we you know about how he's not feeling he's he's capable but I love how human that is, that that something wonderful exists in your life, but you don't feel like you're worthy of having it or you're worthy of holding it. Like that's such a human thing. Um, I mean, I'm in a new relationship right now myself that is so wonderful that sometimes I'm like, I don't know if I'm good enough for this. And I have to catch myself and be like, you know, I am like, I, I, I deserve this. This is great. But like that was immediately like a connection for me to um, – to this episode and, and to that character of, of Din. Cause it's like, I understand that feeling of knowing that there's something really special in your life. And you kind of doubt yourself of like, wow, do, am I good enough to have this? Yeah. I think that's in general, why you and I are really drawn to the Mandalorian as characters because of his humanness. You know, he's not like a superhero and we've seen like throughout the series, like how he displays different, emotions that are very relatable and show the more human side of himself. But I think this is really the first time that we've seen a very uh, prominent instance of like lack of confidence. Mm, yeah. But, but we've seen like such a, a wide range of his emotions over the season. And I, I think that's really cool. And it just makes him even more relatable as the season goes on. Definitely. Definitely. Um, so they finally, you know, they come down to Tython and it's great because he's like, we have to finish the ride with the 
the windows open, which is great. No, that was good. Yeah. That was not what I was expecting at all. I mean, you only have a split second to think of what that's going to be, but I I was like, wait, what? And then, yeah, they're just flying through the air. That was hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, is he going to put the top down or something? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. and yeah, because at first it's like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Like, (laughs) but then you're like, oh yeah, it does. So they, they come to this, you know, they come to this seer stone at the top of this, essentially like almost like an ancient temple. And you and I were texting about this this morning about how well this this temple setting really correlates to um, sacred spaces that exist in our own world. Uh, you sent me some pictures from a place you went to in Peru, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely got vibes of uh, that that place that I was in, in in Peru. It was actually for a retreat, and I was definitely getting vibes of that in this episode. Um, really took me back for a second. It was it was pretty profound. Um, and then you said that you had like a similar connection with th- with that set piece too, with your past experiences. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I spent a summer in um, Ireland a number of years ago, living at a monastery. And I went with a couple of monks to this. It's called a uh, it's called a thin space, um, and it was this old like Gaelic uh, sacred space in southern Ireland. Um, it was the top of a top of a hill. I wouldn't call it a mountain. It was more of a, a hill. Um, but there aren't a lot of mountains in Ireland to begin with. Um, and it was essentially just a bunch of stones, and there was a central stone in the middle of it. And what they called it is they call it a thin space because. Um, kind of the the ancient culture believed that these high spaces were kind of this thin space between the the sacred reality and the profane reality. Um, so there was something really special there. Um, I felt nothing while I was there, and I remember being really bummed about that. Um, but that but it immediately when I saw that visual in this episode, I was like, oh, this reminds me of like so many quintessential sacred spaces, right? I mean, all of Judeo Christian tradition is about going up to mountains, you know, like that's where God meets Moses and. You know, so it's 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 really drawing from our own uh, cultural experience to show it is this kind of like mountain piece area um, where the child is going to ultimately connect with the the divine force, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the the design and production teams just really nailed this this set design. I mean, not just with like the the planet itself, but e- even with like that that seeing stone architecture and. I know a lot of fans, they complain about, oh, they want more unique environments in Star Wars. And I'm, I'm not saying that's not warranted, but to me, what's important is, is the environment helping to tell the story? Um, mm. And, and I, I hate to be cliche, but I'm going to bring up an example of Rogue One. Because <laughs> it. it's going to tie in, I promise. But, I mean, Doug Chang, obviously, he's like one of the lead designers in Star Wars. And he said that the color palettes of the environments in that film were reflective of Jen Urso's character arc. And mm. as her vision and purpose becomes more clear, so do the environments, they become brighter. Mm. And I, I think there's a lot of different things that you can take away about the environments um, with all the films. But I think this is just proof once again, that Doug Chang, Doug Chang is a genius when it comes to telling the story through the environment and the design, because I, I definitely felt a sense of, like sacredness with this architecture of spirituality and also that it was like rooted in ancient history. Like Mm. this has been here for a while. This is something like profound that's going to change the development for our characters. So I, I think just even with like the environment and the set, that's really, really good storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and when they when they get to the mountain, there's the all uh, the these blue butterflies. Which Jim, can you do you remember? I know that these are really important to a specific group of like Star Wars fans. Like you know, I, I noticed on Twitter, like people will put blue butterflies next to their usernames. Um, I feel like it has something to do with either World Between Worlds or Raylo. Um, I could be. I mean, I, I kind of speaking out of my ignorance here. Do you understand this the the importance of blue butterflies in Star Wars? Because I know it's I know it's a thing, and it, I thought it was really neat that they were there. I, I'm honestly drawing a blank. The only thing I can think of, and this is a total shot in the dark, but um, I, I mentioned to you like how much I liked the last episode because of how strongly it was referencing Princess Mononoke, mm-hmm. and I know there are different like spiritual environments in Princess Mononoke. 
where like the forest spirit dwells and whatnot, where you see blue butterflies like that, I believe. But I, I'm taking a complete shot in the dark. I could be completely wrong. Like John Favreau could be listening to this. He's like, "Wow, you're way off." <laughs> Listen, if John Favreau's listening to this, I don't care if he hates the show. I'm just glad he's listening. <laughs> so. Right. But yeah, that's a that's a good good point. I'm gonna have to look into that. Yeah, uh, I meant, after this. Yeah, so I meant to do that myself. Now. But but yeah, like I I know I've seen it, and I've seen it in like uh like some Raylo art. Um, as well. So I, I, I know that that particular part of the fan community um, understands it. So I, I, if you are part of that fan community, you understand the significance. I really encourage you to shoot us a message and tell us what it's about because um, I did not do my homework. So I don't want to speak anymore because I'm just ignorant of what it is. But it, all the same, I love that they were these blue butterflies and I love how the child's kind of enamored with it. And, you know, the Mandalorian is like, well, do you see anything? Oh, maybe they see you. I don't know. Like he's, he, there's kind of this uh, impulsiveness to him there, and, and to me, the the way Mandalorian is like, he's almost like impatient that the child like hurry up and gets it done, even before they know anyone's, you know, on their tail. I almost feel like you know when you are, when you're in a situation in life, when something you really care about, you know, kind of has to come to an end. Like maybe you're you know, at a, at a really good concert. And they're like, Oh, this is going to be our last song for tonight. And you're like, well, just get to it then. Like there's this impatience to you because you know how much it's about to hurt. And you just kind of want to get that over with, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's what oh, the Mandalorian is kind of expressing again. And that humanness is um, there's an impatience there, not because he's upset or impatient with the child specifically, but it's more so because He's he just really wants if this is like if if Grogu needs to be taken away, he just wants to rip that bandaid off because he knows it's going to hurt. You know, I think it's similar to chapter three, actually, the sin when he does actually hand the child over uh, to the client and then he goes to grief Karga and he's like, just give me my next job. Just like, I don't care what it is. Just just give it to me. Um, but then obviously he has second thoughts and he goes back for the child, obviously. So I think this is just more of that, um, even more so because now they have like an even, even deeper relationship between the two of them. That's a great point. Great point. Um, honestly, like to like reference another film, this reminds me a lot of, uh, Alan Grant's relationship with the kids in Jurassic Park, like overall the Mandalorian's. Uh, arc of parentage like in Jurassic Park obviously Alan Grant like he's not into kids at all he, he's, he doesn't want any kids but he like learns to like really like kids and he's like trying really hard but he's not really like the best parent like when he says oh I'll stay up all night while you kids can sleep and I'll keep things safe and then the next scene he's like asleep <laughs> <laughs> but this was like the Mandalorian kind of reminds me of in some ways like seeing his parentage grow like sometimes like it's not the best parentage, but he's really trying. Like, yeah. you know, his intentions are really good. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's a great analogy. <laughs> um, so, well, so the child finally um, makes con- a connection and I, and I love this subtle little mo- uh, moment where uh, Mandalorian is just kind of pacing on his own. And then Grogu reaches down and touches the seer stone. It reminded me a lot of Last Jedi when Luke takes Rey's hand and places it on that rock, you know, on Octo when he's trying to teach her how to connect to the Force. Um, so I, I just I kind of love that visual reference to something we've already seen in Star Wars um, that Grogu reaches down and touches the rock, and that's when boom, you know, this this Force energy just kind of envelops him. Yeah, I I think too with like this episode and even like maybe some of the episodes in this season, we've really started to see like how force sensitive that the child is. Because I mean, we see like in the first season where you know he's able to stop the mudhorn, and we also see when he's able to heal grief Karga. But I mean, seeing him on that stone and and activating it like that, I mean, mm. that was like a really profound use of the force that like really is is kind of unique in star wars i think maybe you could draw some parallels maybe to like rebels or something but that that felt like really unique to me i thought it was pretty profound yeah to show like how strong with the force that this child actually is yeah how special he is yeah 
And and I that I love how you kind of are referencing rebels, right? Because when I know when like Kanan and Ezra go to that one temple on Lothal, like they have to use the Force, and it kind of rises up out of the ground, which was a really cool kind of new thing for the Force in the Jedi. And I was honestly kind of expecting something similar to that here, so I love that that it was something different because um, it's just it's constantly showing us new avenues of of kind of like the Force theology, if you will. Um, so I really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, once again, they nailed it with the set, and the set is complementing what is going on with the characters, and yeah, it's just all really great. Yeah, and then you know we get we get the Slave One flying in, which it's I like I've I was a huge Boba Fett fan as a little kid just because he looked awesome, even though he really does nothing in the movies. Um, and you know, then when they bring him in, Attack of the Clones is kind of a clone. I was just like, eh. I'm not as excited anymore. Um, but obviously, you know, Jason and I have been doing a basically a whole month dedicated to attack of the clones. So it's pretty obvious that I've really come to love that movie. Um, but what was so cool about seeing the, the slave one flying the, the sky like that is the sound. I mean, it's, it's the exact same sound of the slave one in attack of the clones. And then obviously not, you know, with, eventually the blu-ray and now the disney plus release of of empire strikes back they've also dubbed in that sound to be the slave one um so it was just really cool to to hear the slave one show up yeah i feel like that's like half of the appeal sometimes of star wars for me is just like how they can nail like product production with like the sets and the cinematography and the sound mixing and the visual effects and bring all that together I just like really admire that and how much work actually goes behind all of that. But yeah, that was actually something I was going to mention too was the, the sound because I think like the sound in particular in this uh, this season's been really really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was that was definitely unexpected though. I was yeah. I was not expecting the, the slave one to Me, pop out of the sky. Me at neither. All. When he hears like something in the sky, I'm like, oh, it's probably you know it's like Moff Gideon or you know the, the it's the Empire. Um, so to see the slave one, cause you know, you and I talked about this, you know, off, off air, obviously, but after the, after chapter nine came out with the Marshall, yeah, like, oh, we may not even see Boba Fett for the, you know, the rest of the season. Like it, it's just there to be like, oh, he's alive. Um, so that it really did kind of like, whoa, that's what, what the hell is he doing here <laughs> type of a thing. And yeah, yeah. It definitely caught me off guard in a good way though. Yeah. So when he and when Mando goes and like has that initial interaction with him, he's like, are you a Jedi? I love the way that Boba is dressed. He's got the robes on. He's got the hood on. Part of me almost thought like he's going to pretend and say yes, because in my mind, that first viewing, what I was thinking, Jim, was, oh, somehow Boba Fett got like connected to Moff Gideon and he's he's a bounty hunter again. He's going to go track them down and capture Mm -hmm. the child. So my initial thought was he's going to pretend to be a Jedi and just and take Grogu and screw the Mandalorian. Because I'll, I'll say this. When we got the episode title right at the beginning of the episode, the tragedy, I was like, well, this is where the child gets abducted. There's no doubt about it in my mind. <laughs> like, I knew that was going to yeah, happen. I, I think a lot of us saw that coming. Even at the beginning of the season, yeah. we're like, okay, this, this is going to be like rock bottom for the Mandalorian. I mean, it's got to be that he loses the child at some point point, has to get him back. Yeah. I think we all saw that coming. It was more of a matter of like, when's it going to happen? How's it going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I was really, I, I thought it was really interesting how um, Boba is really trying to deescalate things here. You know, uh, I, I love Fennec Shand being back, um, you know, so we finally got the answer to who was that that showed up at the end of that episode in, you know, chapter five. Um, clearly it was Boba Fett. I mean, a lot of people were guessing Boba Fett. Some people thought Cad, I thought Cad Bane. Um so it's neat to get that confirmation. Um, and I love, I love how Boba Fett and Fennec Shan are working together. And there is Boba Fett in this episode is different from anything I've ever expected of him. And what I mean by that is there's also a humanness to him. And I feel like his experience of surviving the Sarlacc and then just being kind of left for dead in the, you know, the sands of Tatooine, um, it's really changed who he is as a person. And when he found Fennec Shan, I don't think he was necessarily looking for her, but when he just kind of stumbled across her, you know, in the Dune Sea, he kind of uh, offered up the same uh, 
the same thing that he would have wanted. I, you know, we don't know how he survived. We don't know any of that story yet. I'm sure we'll get it eventually. Um, but I thought it was really interesting that Boba Fett kind of comes across as a somewhat compassionate character. What did you think about that? Yeah, I thought that was definitely like very surprising. I mean, part of it too, like when he first sees the Mandalorian part of him, I was just like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired. I'm old. Like, I don't want to fight you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But like on a more like introspective note, I guess, like he says that he's not loyal to anybody but himself, but he's still a man of honor. And like, mm-hmm. like Bo-Katan, he operates by his own interpretation of the code. And I think Din might be in the kind of like in the process of creating his own code of what it means to be a Mandalorian after everything he's experienced this season, specifically with Bo-Katan and Boba Fett now. And I mean, I absolutely love that. I mean, it's taking the good parts of the old, you know, retiring the bad and evolving with the new. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that Bo-Katan and Boba's personal sense of honor is something that the Mandalorian will carry forward for himself. Um, You know, whatever he decides with his own code, possibly, you know, he's always had a sense of honor, but I think it's going to have a more like personal focus, I guess, instead of being just like a predetermined pattern of belief. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, so uh, yeah, I just, I love this, this kind of, the moment when, you know, I mean, because Boba is essentially saying, I've been tracking you because I want my armor back. I want the armor that Cobb Vanth have, which I am a little interested if he knew he knows Cobb Vanth by name. He knows where he was. And we're going to get into this a little more uh, detail, I'm sure. But it's pretty clear in this episode, Boba Fett kicks some serious butt. I don't think he'd have any trouble beating the crap out of Cobb Vanth. <laughs> so I am yeah, really curious a- why he never got it sooner. Because Cobb yeah, Vanth doesn't seem point. to, he doesn't seem like he'd put up much of a fight against a guy like this. Mm-hmm. Unless, uh, this is a stretch, unless it's like the whole town is on Cobb Vanth's side and is willing to protect Cobb Vanth because he protects them. And But I still think that Boba could like take on an entire village after watching what he did to the stormtroopers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and, that's a good point. And also like to point out the fact that Boba walks around carrying his two weapons are, you know, the rifle and a gaffy stick of a Tusken Raider. He didn't just find those. I would imagine like Tusken Raiders. And again, this is coming off of a lot of what I learned in the Kenobi novel by John Jackson Miller. Um, right. Like the, what their culture is, that very warrior like culture. They don't seem the type that are just going to leave those things lying about. I almost wonder if like Boba Fett, like ambushed a Tusken Raider or, or, or a small party of them. And like, and he took them, right? It wasn't like he found them and made them his. I Again, this is just pure speculation. But um, watching the way he fought, like, I wouldn't be surprised if he just rolled up on a small band of Tusken Raiders and just killed them and took their stuff. Yeah, it's possible. Or it could even be the opposite where, you know, he takes the approach that the Mandalorian does with, like, negotiating with him. I guess it's really, mm. at, like, what time period he would have acquired those. If we're talking, like, immediately after the Sarlacc, like, he's going to ambush those Tuscans. If we're talking, like, two years after that, okay, maybe he's going to negotiate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, well, for all we know, maybe some Tuscans found him lying outside the Sarlacc and took him in and then he just leaves them. Who knows? Right. Like mm-hmm. I don't swear allegiance to anybody. Maybe they brought him in and he refused to swear allegiance to them. So he just walks away. Who knows? All right. This is speculation. Mm-hmm. Um, but bar that like, you know, um, the empire finally shows up and we have a mad dash of, you know, Fennec and, uh, Boba go to engage them. Mando heads up the hill to, to get to the child um, and we just, to me again, like just some more classic star Wars, fun action and adventure. Um, I love, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, I was going to say too, that a lot of people are comparing Fennec and Boba to Zam and Django Fett now, oh, um, interesting. which I I'm totally down for, because I think I've mentioned to you that I'm like a huge Django Fett fan. And, mm-hmm. you know, I love the dynamic that Django and Zam had in that, that 2002 star Wars bounty hunter video game. Which Tamora was also in, by the way. So I highly recommend people at least check out the cutscenes for that. Um, but yeah, seeing those two together is just, it's a lot of fun, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Um, 
and uh, you know, kind of like you were saying, you know, these are all three of them are kind of characters of honor, even though Boba refuses to be a, a lead, you know, alleged. A, my God, <laughs> he refuses to align himself with anybody or any creed or any cause. Um, he saved Fennec Shan's life, so she has pledged to support him. Which makes sense. You know, this is, it, it, I mean, it reminds me of the whole, you know, old life debt thing between Han and Chewie, you know. Um, yep. By the way, I love that Solo never gave us a life debt because I, I, I hate the idea of the old legend story of Han frees him from slavery and then he just essentially enslaves himself to Han, which is kind of silly. So I loved what they did in Solo, where it's just essentially Chewie chose Han. I, like, I love that. Um, mm-hmm. But this concept of like swearing allegiance to people because of, them giving you a lot is, is something that's been in star Wars for so long. So it's, it totally just makes sense that Fennec Shan would offer her support to Boba Fett. Um, and yeah, clearly, I, think, yeah. I was just going to say, I think there's a sense of pride to that too. Um, like kind of like re, repaying a debt and like, you know, finishing what you, what you've started, you know, kind of like what we're going to see at the end of the episode when, you know, Boba says like, Oh yeah, I have the armor now, but you know, I need a, to finish the job. I think there's a sense of pride in that honor too, which uh, keeps them grounded. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I love when Mandalorian goes back up to the hill, goes back onto the top of the the seer stone, and and tries to get the child. He is he tries three times. Um, so he tries once right right after Slave One shows up. He tries to get the child. He gets thrown back. And then he tries two more times when he sees the Imperials, you know, gets thrown back both times. I love that it's three times. Again, that's just a very Western uh, spiritual type thing that you try something three times. Um, it re- actually reminded me a lot of uh, the story of the Book of Mormon um, in, in the Mormon tradition. So Joseph Smith, when he finds the Book of Mormon, he tries to pull it out of the ground a couple of times, but he's denied the first few times because his heart's not in the right place. Like he's doing it for the wrong reasons. So God doesn't let him do it initially. Um, so I, I kind of love that correlation to like these old religious origin story type, uh, type things where uh, Din is trying to pull him away, even though this is something that really needs to happen. And I love after the third time and uh, when he fails, he says, all right, I'm going to protect you. I'll delay them as long as I can. Like that's your purpose, Dan, is just to protect him. He's doing what he needs to do. What you need to do, what you're called to do in your relationship to Grogu is to protect him. Um, so, and then of course, as soon as he starts running back down the hill, Grogu's done, <laughs> you know? Right. That's always how it works out. But one thing I did like about that too was just what the effects was like, how they muffled the sound. Um, yeah. It, like it was almost like through Grogu's perspective of trying to hear the Mandalorian reaching out to him. Um, it, it's just like a moment that you don't really, I, I don't even think we've seen a moment like that in star Wars where the, the sound is, is like that. The dialogue, it, it's like that, but it just, it stands out so much that it says to the audience, like this is a profound moment. Something significant is going to happen. You need to pay attention. So yeah. I, I really liked that. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, so yeah, you know, um, we obviously, and then, you know, we get the, persp- just the, the, the firefight between, you know, this, the stormtroopers and Boba and Fennec Shand. Um, and we do get yeah, to that, see, I Bo- was just going to say yeah. with that, that shootout that Fennec has with the stormtroopers. Um, I, I'm sure like that kind of shootout is in a lot of different Western films. Um, I'm sure you know, it's a very prominent feature of those films, but I don't know if you've seen hell or high water. It just came out like a few years ago, but that's just like one of the Westerns I'm more familiar with. And like, I definitely got some really strong vibes from hell or high water, uh, with this scene in particular, but I mean, it's just like great Western storytelling really. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, actually the, the visual of, you know, kind of this Rocky mountaintop, it reminded me a lot of, uh, an aspect of the Battle of Gettysburg in the Civil War. Um, you had this battle at a place called Devil's Den that led up to Little Round Top. Um, and you had the shootout between, you know, the entrenched um, Union soldiers in the in the rocks up on the hills shooting at the invading Confederates. Um, so, of course, the stormtroopers are the bad guys like the Confederates were. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you've got the good guys hiding in the rocks, gunning them down. Um, 
And I think that technique she does with the rock, I could be mistaken because I'm not an expert in, in Western films, but like it, I know in Hell, her, Hell or High Water, I mean, spoiler alert, but at the at the scene when they have, it, where it's pretty similar to this, there's like a sniper on the top of a hill and he's being surrounded. Uh, a, like a Jeep or a truck tries to come up the hill at him and, you know, the driver doesn't survive. So the sniper fills it with gas, pushes it back down the hill, and then it blows up. So that just reminded me a lot when Fennec was pushing that, that rock down, you know, thinking, thinking smart, not necessarily hard. (laughs) Although it did, that that was quite a feat to to push that rock down the hill. Yeah. (laughs) I'll say like, uh, she's got some strong legs. Mm -hmm. Um, taking out five stormtroopers with one stone. Yeah. (laughs) I will say it also just in my soft little heart, I was just like, Oh, it's like Jar Jar with the Boombas. Um, during the oh, battle of Naboo, true. <laughs> so you know, coming down the hill to take out the the battle droids. Um, yeah. Uh, I, One thing I wanted to say, mm-hmm. I would, sorry to cut you off, no. but with Boba's fighting style, um, and this kind of gets to what you were saying at earlier with how like the the experiences, whatever experiences he's had in the last three years, it's changed him, and I think the brutality in his fighting style is very reflective of how he has survived since Return of the Jedi. You know, he didn't learn those moves overnight. And that's from, you know, not just like his years of bounty hunting, but his years of survival in a very harsh environment. And like, to me, that's just like a really great way to explain like how he survived without making it this like really drawn out scene of exposition where he's explaining for like five minutes. Yeah. This is how I got out of the Sarlacc inch by inch. Like yep. I don't need that. Right. I like being, being shown that through the brutality of his fighting style. Yeah. And I got to say, I love the music that Ludwig gives us for kind of like, I'm calling it basically the Boba Fett theme motif. The, you know, there's a, there's a brutality to the music that immediately like, works perfectly with his fighting style. Here we go. Let's hear it. I just love like, it's just, it's, there's just such a, a a brutal sound to the music, to the score in that moment when, when Boba Fett is kicking butt, (laughs) you know, uh, and, like and then you co- combine that with Tamora's facial expressions. It's like, okay, he is out to to whack some stormtroopers, like yeah. the, the armorer did at the end of season one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he r- really, really is. And and uh, yeah, like I mean, Boba just fights so brutal. Um, and it's almost primal. Yeah. Yes. That's a that's a really great way to express it, Jim. It, it's it, it, it's. It's primal with precision. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, here's a, just a tiny bit more. Yeah, I mean, just yeah, he, the- he means business. <laughs> yes, he does. Um, Man, it's just he's well, just brutal. But one of the interesting things is though, do you think in Boba's mind, he his ferocity is rooted in him saying that he will protect the child if he gets the armor. So does he think like is he that confident he's gonna get the armor and he's doing this so he can hold his end of the deal up? Hmm. I I didn't think of that. You know, um, or it's or it's just a matter of survival too yeah, for him. I think it's just this is just how he fights now. Mm-hmm. Um and I yeah, I think that's a great point though, Jim, that he is he's so close to getting what he's been seeking, right? If again, we don't know the story of how how he's been trying to get his armor, but it makes sense that um this this armor is just as much part of his identity as Din Djarin's armor is for him, right? Um so he's so close to getting it. All he's got to do is, you know, defend them against these stormtroopers here. He's going to there's a tenacity to that fight. The way you pose that question, Jim, it also makes me think a little bit of Ben Solo just wrecking the Knights of Ren and Rise of Skywalker. Um, I still think the choreography of that fight is absolutely lame as heck. But um, 
the fact that he dispatches them so quickly is because he's he's going after what he's really been after. He's really seeking Ray. He's got to get to her. So he's going to do whatever it takes to get there. And he just cuts through them like butter. And I feel like that's a great, great way of kind of placing how Boba's fighting here is he knows that the Mandalorian has his armor. He's so close to getting it back. So there's just like this ferociousness that he's going to fight with because he just wants this to be over so he can get that part of his identity back. Yeah, I think that that's the the key. It's part of his identity. Um, I think that's part of the the key with like the whole "this is the way." And I don't think that's been like explicitly explained yet uh, throughout the series. And I don't think it has to be because uh, there's different ways you could interpret it. But for me, it's like a like a matter of identity, which is like one of the most important aspects of, of yourself, really. Um, so yeah, I think like you said, part of that that primal fighting style to him and that ferocity is is rooted in him wanting that armor because it is his identity he's getting his identity back and you even see when he like struts out with that armor that he's like okay i haven't even like leveled up version of the confidence that i had wait till you see what i'm about to do (laughs) (laughs) yeah for sure um and, you know, after he dispatches some stormtroopers, he just he happens to just notice it just sitting there inside of, uh, you know, the Razor Crest. And he goes and gets it, which is a good thing because they they needed him, um, you know, as Fennec and, and Mandalorian are getting surrounded. I also love how Mandalorian just kind of stands out in the front and lets his Beskar soak up shots. I mean, he does the same thing, you know, in uh, chapter 11, the Bo-Katan, the Bo-Katan episode, right, where he yes. runs forward and. What I've always thought of, I love that moment in the Bogotan episode because mainly because just the music there, it's like a really cool statement of his theme. But it's also what we learned in that episode about him is he's part of a fanatic group in in the Mandalorian culture. Like he's he's an evangelical Mandalorian. <laughs> he's a fundamentalist oh, yeah. Mandalorian. Um, and you know, there's there's a little bit of this like almost recklessness to him, and we see that in that moment. And his armor's. Honestly, I would say his armor is better made than the majority of Mandalorian armor. Um, and the way he just kind of stands there and, and takes the shot so that Fennec Shan can kind of use him as, as a body shield. Um, again, just kind of, to me, brings up that, that sense of like, there's a fanatical, there's a fanaticism to, uh, to, to the Mandalorian. Yeah, you kind of get that in that first in episode of the season when he just he goes after the dragon he's willing to like you know go down to the belly and yeah. he's just like yeah take care of the child it, it's kind of like another instance of that and part of it might be like that that stubbornness and, and pride coming into play a little bit um but I, I think we're starting to see a lot of that evolve uh, yeah. with him yeah but and that it's just a cool scene too i mean it, it's i think it's important that star wars has these moments that are just like really cool too it's right. part of star wars <laughs> it is part of star wars yeah yeah um but we we got to talk about this this devastating loss uh, of our beloved razor crest i did not see that <laughs> i did not see that coming and it's not and nope. it's it's not like what you know when the jawas kind of scavenge it in chapter two. I was like, man, he's never going to get that shit back. Um, but it seemed like it was indestructible. Like yeah. the, the Falcon was, it's like, yeah. oh, you, crash it, but you can, you can just completely build it again from scratch. But no, that thing is gone. It's gone. You're right. There, it, that's not, there's no coming back from that. Um, so I was, I was texting with, you know, my buddy Greg and Ben this morning and Ben was hilarious. Cause he goes, um, because uh, Ben loves the Razor Crest, so you know Greg says to him in in, in our group text, he goes, "So Ben, how you doing? You just lost your favorite character." And he goes, "I took." He goes, "He goes, I took a hammer to my uh, Lego Razor Crest immediately." <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Obviously joking, but like that was just hilarious. Um, but threw it off a balcony. Yeah, I I mean I just didn't see that coming, and and this is the first. No. real big gut punch to the Mandalorian. Like that is, I mean, and this, this would be like Han Solo watching the Falcon get blown up. Right. You know I mean? That was his home. That that's also part of his identity. It's, it's his home in, you know, it's his home on wheels and it just gets blown up in front of him. And even though he's wearing a helmet, I feel like just the way they shoot, uh, they kind of zoom up from the bottom of his helmet. Like you, you see the despair 
on a helmeted face. Oh yeah, totally. And like part of it too is like the audience can kind of project what they're feeling in that moment. They can project their shock onto his helmet and like feel it that way too. Um, but man, that was that was pretty devastating loss. I, like of all the like cameos and whatnot, there's been a lot of spoilers and leaks, and uh, I I'm really surprised that they they did that, especially all the merchandising around it. Like everybody's like, this is the next Falcon. And it's like, wow. Uh, I guess in a way it was, but yeah. <laughs> not anymore. I just hope they don't pull like a, I think it was one of the Guardians of the Galaxies movies where like Chris Pratt loses his ship and he gets a brand new one just like it at the end. They, I really hope they don't do that. Like let it have its impact, you know? Yeah. Let it have its emotional resonance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like they will. I don't know though. Um, I was I was a little surprised though uh, because we've been building up to like the Mandalorian questioning like his identity does he need to take on a new way and between losing the Razor Crest and then losing Grogu which I'm sure we'll discuss I'm kind of surprised he didn't like just completely rip his helmet off and say like I'm just done with this like have a really strong emotional outburst again but obviously we haven't gotten the complete story yet so that's making me think like. What what's it going to be like when he has this moment where he kind of takes on a new identity and takes off the helmet, which is, you know, that, that signifies a lot. And it, it really makes me wonder, like, how that is going to happen. That's, like, one of the things I'm anticipating the most because, I mean, I, I've got a really strong feeling he's going to get Grogu back somehow. I, I could be completely wrong about that. I hope I'm not wrong. Um, but I have a strong feeling that things will end up working out for him. But the thing I'm really anticipating is like that identity switch. Like, is it going to be like this emotional outburst where something awful happens? Maybe something else awful happens with Grogu and he just rips off the helmet and says like, I'm taking on a new identity. I can't do it this way. Or if it's going to be like a more like somber, intimate moment with just Grogu where he's like, okay, you're very important to me. And I'm removing my helmet. You're going to be a first person that's seen my face in the next amount of years. That That's one thing that's like really been on my mind with this episode. <laughs> I don't know if I'm just thinking too much into it. <laughs> I don't think so at all. I mean, I think that's, that's why this episode resonates so much for you and also for me, because it does, it raises the questions of who is the Mandalorian without, uh, let's just get right into it without Grogu now. Right. Um, you know, they, these death troopers, which by the way, are just what an awesome visual to like get the death troopers in live action. I mean, this is something that was in the old dark forces games in the early nineties, the dark troopers, dark troopers. Thank you. Um, and they look so cool. And as, as Fennec and Mandalorian are running up the hill, um, it also reminded me a lot of, uh, one of my all time favorite movies is the last of the Mohegans. Um, and at the end of that movie, you kind of have our main characters running up this hill to try to protect one of the other main characters. So it just immediately gave me that same vibe of like, oh my God, they've got to get there. What if they don't get there in time? And the same thing happens. They didn't get there in time. And uh, the one they're trying to protect gets taken from them. Um, so, you know, when they see Grogu get grabbed and cause I'm thinking to myself, first off, I'm like, oh, what kind of epic fight are we going to get between Fennec Shand and the Mandalorian and these, in these, uh, uh, death or dark troopers, right. Dark troopers. Right. Um, but they're just too slow and you know, just barely get there. Um, and then and, with Boba Fett too, like after seeing him like completely wreck those stormtroopers in like 50 different ways, I'm like, okay, maybe he, he's going to be able to like just snipe those dark troopers out of the sky and like magically catch the child like in, like the slave one somehow. And then you see the star destroyer and you're like, Oh no, like he's, he's not going to be any match against that. Yeah. And again, like that was a moment for Boba Fett where it really, uh, there's a compassion to him in a way. I mean, maybe that's the wrong word for, I don't know if it's so much compassion as he's a man of honor. They made a promise, you know, I got my best car back. So my promise was that I'd keep you and the child safe. He's not safe right now. Um, he doesn't, t- I mean, he could have easily shot them out of the sky, but it would have killed Grogu. Um, right. You know, and, I, I, you know, obviously earlier in the episode, I thought it was very, it's very intentional that Boba says, remove your jetpack, 
right? You know, he can't have that for the episode because all he needed, if he had his jetpack on, he'd have flown up right after them. But he, exactly, he, they had to they had to remove it. Um, so you know, when he comes back down, I mean, my favorite my favorite part of the episode because it's an emotional part is then when we get um, Din just kind of picking around the wreckage of the Razor Crest and. Is he's kind of standing there and he finds that ball and, you know, the music is quite beautiful in that moment. All I thought of was like, he's homeless now. He's lost everything. He, he's empty. He, he's empty. Yeah. And, and I, you know, what I said to you and I texted you this morning, I was like, I was like, it's kind of like Jen at the beginning of Rogue One. She sees her parents taken from her one, literally one that she does not really sure. I guess that probably what happens to Galen, but then she, her house gets, you know, literally destroyed these are the types of characters that draw me into star Wars is so as, as Din is kind of picking through the ashes of his previous life, you know, you're just thinking, my God, he, he literally has nothing left now. Mm-hmm. Um, everything's been taken from him. So what is he going to do? And part of him is defeated because he, he offers up the Beskar spear to Boba. Um, uh, well, I no, he doesn't offer it up, but he, you know, he, but he says like our transaction is complete. Like, you know, and and Boba's like, no, it's not. We promised to protect you and that child. He's not mm-hmm. safe. We're going to help you. Yeah, the honor and that loyalty, the, the personal honor and loyalty. It's not. It's not blind honor. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you think of that scene, though, of him just kind of picking through the wreckage? Oh, I, d- I definitely got that that sense of like this emptiness and. You know, he could have like completely collapsed and, you know, put his hands on his helmet. Oh, my God, I can't believe this has happened to me. But it it was I think because of like the way he was moving, it was more so you could just feel the shock and the emptiness. Like I've I've worked so hard to like get this child to this point and everything is gone. You know, it's almost like impossible for him to fathom. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But like you said, these are the kind of events that propel our main characters forward. And, you know, like every every main character has that moment, you know, where they hit that that bottom point. And that's what inspires them to, like, take things to the next level. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, So they leave in the slave one and go back to Navarro and he essentially recruits. Marshal Karadun, who is now a marshal for the New Republic. So apparently that conversation she had with that rebel pilot at the end of the that episode did have an impact on her. She's she is now serving again in a way. She's she's not just the marshal, she's a marshal of the New Republic. Um and Mando wants to spring um Mayfeld from chapter six from the first season. Uh the the character played by Bill Burr. Both, you know, you and I both strongly dislike that character but <laughs> yeah that was a, that was the low point of the episode yeah. the one low point of the yeah. episode i was like oof oof no, i don't need i don't need back. a guy with a boston accent and a walmart costume in star wars but um yeah it's a little odd he's just awkward but from the story point it makes sense he's an ex-imperial so um for whatever reason he feels like mayfeld can help him track down gideon um so my guess is that next episode we're going to see them spring mayfeld um, and then we'll have. The and final I imagine. Episode. I imagine it's going to be brief. I hope it's going to be brief. I hope and it's not, not a like, whole episode. Not like the entire episode is just chapter six all over again. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, the Mandalorian needs to act now. He does not have a lot of time to get to Grogu. Like he he needs to get this done and hunt Moff Gideon down. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the more we're talking about this, when you brought up Cardoon and. You know, now she's like this um, new Republic marshal. It's just getting to this theme of identity with this episode and taking uh, taking on a new identity, you know, setting aside certain aspects of the old that don't work for you and, you know, taking on newer ones and being able to grow and being able to change, like, those predetermined patterns of belief that you've been following. And, like, you see with Kara, you see with Boba, and, I mean, that's just playing into what's going on with the Mandalorian as a character too. Um, yeah. that, I mean, that's, that's really, really good storytelling. The more yeah. I think about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but then know, of course we yeah. get, uh, I was just going to say, then we get the infamous Moff Gideon. Yeah. My gosh. Uh, um, 
oh gosh, Giancarlo Esposito, I believe is the actor's name. Mm-hmm. He's just a great villain. I mean, he was absolutely incredible as Gus Fring and Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Um, and he brings that same energy to Moff Gideon. Um, and it's it's great when it, you know he's walking into the cell and, and Grogu is just using the force to s- slap around some stormtroopers. And he's just so impressed. Um, but poor little Grogu just collapses and then is stunned. And I mean, we know what they're after him for. They're going to har- they want to harvest his blood. Um, so, I mean, again, just a very ominous closing to the episode. Yeah. I'm off Gideon. He's in the same like villain category for me as Tarkin is in that he's intimidating through his words and demeanor, not necessarily through like an overwhelming physical presence or like a specific fighting style. And like, personally, I find villains like Tarkin and Gideon, you know, that don't place a lot of value on life to be some of the most intimidating and dangerous villains for our heroes to deal with. So I, I think he's incredibly effective. Absolutely. I did. And that's a great comparison. Tarkin is, I hate Tarkin so much and that's mm-hmm. what makes him a great villain. Like I, I don't hate him in, in the sense of like, I don't think he's a good character. Um, I hate him because like, that's what you should do. And he mm-hmm. is scarier than Darth Vader. Um, in a lot of ways in a new hope, I would say, because, yeah, you know, Vader is a physical brute, but there's just like there's a calculated genius. And, and I mean, he's a mad but, genius. You know, he's a scary Yeah, genius. but disregard for any kind of life, like zero form of empathy. Yeah. And I think that's present with both of them. There's just zero empathy. And you can't reason with somebody like that. And that that's what kind of makes them intimidating as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Um, so we 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 just doubled the time of the episode by talking about it, which I'm I'm really not surprised. Um, I do you have anything else you want to say before we kind of wrap it up? Um, or uh, uh, I I think we've just about covered everything. Um, it's a really exciting time to be a Star Wars fan. I will say that. Yes. I mean, I'm at like like movie level hype and anticipation. Like, I, I didn't feel like I had that, like, during season one necessarily, because season one felt very, like, serialized, a lot more serialized, mm-hmm. and we didn't have as much of an idea of where it was going. But I would say, like, with these next two episodes, it's, like, movie-level hype for me right now. I'm, like, chomping at the bit to get the rest of the story, and it, it, it's a good time to be a Star Wars fan, like I said. Yeah, uh, right there with you. Um, yeah, so we got two episodes left. You know, um, so we'll find out. We'll know before Christmas how this season ends. Um, Oof, and they've obviously, yeah. right, they've already, con- you know, Favreau's already said that he's written the third season. I don't think they've started production yet. Obviously, COVID is still happening. I mean, luckily, they were able to wrap most of this before mm-hmm. the pandemic stopped filming, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't I don't know when they'll start filming. So we may not we may not get the third season, you know, late next year. It may who knows? I'm not going to. I I am hopeful because Diego Luna like posted a video of him saying some very cryptic things that he's in London right now doing some filming on a little project. Okay. I think that, he, yeah. posted, he posted that today and we all know that he's doing the casting Andor show. So that gives me hope that uh, season three of the Mandalorian will be progressing sooner than later. Um, That's a good point. You know, yeah. It, 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 with, you know, hopefully all the safety protocols like, in place yeah. uh, to keep everybody safe while shooting. But yeah, it seems like they might have, have things down with that and might be able to keep the production going. So that's, that's good news to me. Cause I love the show. Yeah. Good point. Cause they've also, there's a rumor came out today that Kenobi Kenobi finally starts shooting uh, in January and they're actually using Boston supposedly as a filming location. Yeah. So, I did see that too. Yeah. yeah so I got to put on my uh, Boba Fett pants and try to f- track down uh, Ewan McGregor. If he's in the yeah, scene. you can pull it off. Yeah, no problem. problem. <laughs> like, hey, I'm the, the co-host of the Wampusler. Like, what's that? You'll be like the uh, the infamous jeans guy. In, uh, the, <laughs> yeah. the last, like, yeah, I'll I'll be in the ago. first screen, but then they'll uh, Photoshop me out by the by this the yeah. second day. Um, yeah, you got to get a screen cap like real quick. <laughs> yeah, I know it. I know it. Um, awesome. Well, Jim, thanks for taking the time to 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 do this with me quick today. Um, I really wanted to talk about this, and I I knew. Uh, you did too. So it was, it was a lot of fun to get to do it. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's always a pleasure to come on here. And, uh, you know, typically we're always talking about a, you know, a certain star Wars character, but you know, there are other things about star Wars that I love, including this show. So, you know, it's, it's been great to talk about this awesome episode. 
It really, it really, really is an awesome episode. Um, so thank you to everyone for checking out this special episode of the Wampusler podcast, looking at the tragedy of season two of the Mandalorian for Jim. I am Carl and we will see you next time very soon here in the Wampus Lair.